I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Beth Bartel. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 9th, 2012. Coming up, could there be other planets out there like our Earth? I believe in the next two years, we will find the first planets outside our solar system that are truly like the Earth. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, and today we're focusing on special events. And hot off the presses, I always wanted to say that, congratulations to Boulder's David J. Wineland for winning the 2012 Nobel Prize in Physics. The award was announced late yesterday. Wineland, a physicist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in CU Boulder, shares the prize with Sergei Haroche of France. They are credited with making breakthroughs in quantum physics by showing how to observe individual quantum particles without destroying their properties. These, in turn, are the first steps towards building super-fast computers based on quantum physics. Wineland traps ions, electrically charged atoms, with processes known as laser cooling. In relation to the 2012 award, a quantum particle is one that is isolated from everything else. In this situation, an atom or electron or photon takes on strange properties. It can be in two places at once, for example. It behaves in some ways like a wave. But these properties are instantly changed when it interacts with something else, such as when somebody observes it or other particles. Let's hear him now explaining in his own words from a report he did in conjunction with the Institute for Quantum Computing that comes complete with its own dramatic music. We call them traps. So the simplest thing you can think of is analogy is like a marble in a bowl. The marbles are the atoms, they're charged atoms, and the, the bowls are configurations of, in our case, electric fields that allow us to grab onto this charge. The reason that's interesting is just that we can hold them for long periods of time, and we can do this without significantly perturbing their energy structure. We use a technique which is commonly called laser cooling, freeze out the motion as much as possible within quantum mechanical limits. So what we say is that we, what you can think about is this marble in the bowl, the harmonic oscillator. It has quantized energy levels. And with laser cooling, we can do a pretty good job of putting the, the, the motion in its ground state. The 68-year-old Wineland is CU's fifth Nobel Prize winner in science following Tom Cech, who won for chemistry in 1989, Carl Weinman and Eric Cornell, who won for physics in 2001, and John Hall, who also won for physics in 2005, plus the 2007 award to many CU Boulder researchers for their contributions to the International Report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. If you've been up to NCARS Mesa Lab in Boulder, you've probably seen the eight-foot-tall tornado or created a spark in the microburst generation tank. But have you touched a cloud, forecasted the weather, or seen a seven-inch-wide hailstone? Likely not, as their new exhibit, including all this and more, opens tomorrow. 
The National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, is putting their science on display for the public with the revamped NCAR Weather Gallery, with even more interactive exhibits, including an opportunity to share your own weather stories. The Mesa Lab is open to the public 363 days a year and offers free exhibits about weather and climate, guided and self-guided tours, a gallery featuring local artists, an outdoor weather trail, and more. Hours are 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on weekdays and 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. on weekends and holidays. For more information, head to spark.ucar.edu slash visit. And the following Wednesday, October 17th, the Denver Zoo will honor conservation work in Africa. The honors will include the presentation of the Denver Zoological Foundation Conservation Award to Dr. Rosie Woodruff. Dr. Woodruff has focused on understanding the ecological causes of humans and animals in conflict. Dr. Lori Marker, founder of the Cheetah Conservation Fund, will talk about the problems facing the cheetahs, lions, and other fast cats in Namibia. And Denver Zoo conservationists will talk to the zoos about the zoo's, eff- zoo's efforts to save species around the world and in the U.S. There also will be cocktails, food, music, and demonstrations. The event is called In the Field, Africa, and it starts at 7 p.m. and goes until 9 on Wednesday, October 17th at the zoo. It's free to the public, but to go, you'll need to register no later than 5 p.m. this Friday. To register, go to denverzoo.org. We'll be learning more about the zoo's conservation efforts later this month on How on Earth. And tonight, as bolder weather chills down for fall, treat yourself to warmer climes by adventuring to Florida. Virtually, of course. In tonight's Cafe Scientifique, marine scientist Heidi Souter will talk about everything you wanted to know about the Florida Keys coral reefs and a few things you didn't. Explore with Souter what issues are threatening coral reefs today and what communities in the Keys are doing about it. Refreshments start at 5.30 with a short talk at 6, followed by questions. The event takes place at Boulder's Outlook Hotel on 28th Street. Snorkeling gear, not necessary. And Denver also has a Café Scientifique tonight. And leading the discussion will be astronomer Travis Metcalf, who will talk about finding Sister Earth, quivering stars, and the quest for habitable planets. Dr. Metcalf is a research scientist at the Space Science Institute in Boulder, just across the parking lot from the KGNU studio. He received degrees from the University of Arizona and University of Texas and has worked at Aarhus University in Denmark, the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and NCAR here in Boulder before recently moving to the Space Science Institute. We are happy to have him in the studio today and to talk about something uh, about searches for little green men, or at least the places they inhabit. Welcome to the show, Travis. Thanks for having me. So... The work you do hinges on, I guess, the big question, are we alone? Do you have an answer yet? <clears throat> Not quite yet, <laughs> but we're getting closer. So you're, you're searching for what are called exoplanets. What, what are exoplanets? Uh, exoplanet is just a general term for any planet 
that's outside of our own solar system. So um, these are planets orbiting other stars. Other stars. So all the other stars out there, you're searching around trying to find planets out there. That's right. Uh, what's this has a history. You know, we've always been wondering if there's life out there and what other planets might be out there. Can you give us a little history on this search for exoplanets? Sure. Uh, you know, it was less than 20 years ago. The only planets known in the entire universe were in our solar system. Um, and then in... We've even decreased the number a little bit recently. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Poor Pluto. <laughs> If it's any constellation, I would have kept Pluto as a planet. You know, grandfather did end. But. Yes. Yeah, I, I figured dual citizenship, but what, we can talk about that another time. Uh, anyway, uh, in the mid-90s, um, the first planets outside of our solar system around other stars like the sun were discovered um, using a technique to measure the sort of wobble that the planet induces on its uh, parent star. We tend to think of um, planets as orbiting the stars, but in reality... The star and the planet sort of orbit a, a common center of gravity, and so the, the uh, influence of the planet in its orbit around a star causes this little wobble that we can measure. Okay, stars are like our sun. They're big. Yeah. Planets, like the Earth, are small. This, this has to be a very, very small wobble. It's a tiny wobble, although uh, actually in our own solar system, the orbit of Jupiter, um, like an 11- or 12-year orbit, causes the sun to move around the center of gravity of the solar system um, by about the size of the sun itself. So the sun in absolute space is actually wobbling around, uh, and distant observers on other um, possible planets would observe that in the same way that we find their solar system. So people are looking, some, someone's looking for our uh, planets just like we're looking for theirs. Well, I hope so. So um, these wobbles, even though... You know, they seem big locally. They're very, very far away, so they have to be very small wobbles. How do you measure that? Uh, it's a tough measurement to make, and that's really it was technology uh, coming to maturity in the mid-1990s that really allowed those types of measurements to succeed. The efforts to, to make these measurements had been going on for decades before that. Um, but basically, you separate the starlight into its uh, rainbow of colors and uh, look at the motions um, you track the motions with the fingerprints of the chemical elements that are actually in the stars themselves. Uh, and as the stars wobble in space, these these fingerprints, dark spectral lines, uh, shift back and forth by a minute amount. So the measurements you make aren't of the physically seeing the star go back and forth, but it's a spectral shift. That's right, yeah. So, and this started... This was the first technique used back in the 90s. Yeah, in the mid-90s, the, the first planets uh, uh, discovered were discovered using that method. Uh, later on, in the last 10 years in particular, uh, there are some stars where the alignment just happens to be perfect, that those planets uh, actually pass in front of the star from our perspective, and so we can see a tiny dip in the brightness of the star as the planet moves in front of it. Okay, now I'm going to ask the same question again. Stars are bright. Uh -huh. Planets are very small. They, they probably can't block out much light. Well, if you have a planet the size of Jupiter pass in front of a star about the size of the sun, you'll get a 1% dip in the total amount of light. So that's relatively easy. The 1%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As you get to smaller planets like the Earth, though, that, that signal rapidly uh, diminishes. And uh, it's really just simple geometry. The depth of the, the amount of light that goes missing during these transit events uh, is the, tells you the ratio of the size of the planet compared to the size of the star. 
So that was the second technique that was developed, and that also found, I guess, uh, planets that had the correct alignment in their orbit so they could block out some of the light of the star. And this started, again, the search started in the 90s. How many exoplanets do we know about now? Well, as of this morning, there are 839 uh, confirmed planets outside the solar system, around 600-some stars. Some of them are in in multiple planet systems. Um, But in addition, uh, three years ago, NASA uh, launched uh, a a space telescope called Kepler that was designed specifically to look for these um, planets that transit their their parent stars. Um, So these are the planets that go in front of the star block part of the light. Right. And so those are the targets that Kepler was looking at. Right. And the, the trick is because you're just... Um, banking on this chance alignment. You have to look at a very large number of stars so that that small fraction that just happened to be in the right alignment, you'll be able to find those. What would that fraction be roughly? Uh, It depends on the properties of the planet, but it's roughly 1%. Uh, So over the past three years, Kepler has identified more than 2,000 additional uh, planet candidates, they call them, uh, because they're not yet confirmed. Uh, you need to rule out the possib- other possibilities that could look like a transit. Like the star dimming for its own reasons or something like yeah, that? Yes, star spots and uh, a blend between a, a planet and a, or a, a star and a distant uh, eclipsing binary star. Uh, these are the sorts of things that could fool us into believing that there might be a planet when there's not. So there's more than double candidates right now than there are known uh, exoplanets. That's right. Um how did the candidates get confirmed? By repeated observations? Well, um, the candidates that have been confirmed so far, there are something like 50 of the of the 2,000 uh, that Kepler uh, initially discovered have been already confirmed. A but lot of grad students cranking on the data there. <laughs> Not just grad students. In fact, uh, citizen scientists are, are looking at the data through uh, um, a website called planethunters.org where you... Um, and. By the end of this month, all of the Kepler data from the first three years will actually be publicly available and served up through Planet Hunters for people who want to look for transits that computers can't find. So this is like one of the the um, crowdsourcing zoo universe or exactly. and things like that. Yeah. So you can do that with the Kepler data. Yeah. And and what's the URL for that in case people want to go searching for planets? That's planethunters.org. Okay. Very cool. So um, after... Uh, we have the Kepler mission with all these candidates uh, that they're trying to go through and get lots of uh, uh, potential planets. Um, what's, uh, what's next? I mean, is Kepler still doing its work? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's already identified planet candidates that are as small and even smaller than the Earth. And it's also identified candidates that are uh, far enough from their stars that they... Uh, could potentially have liquid water, but they haven't found the single planetary system that has both of those characteristics yet. Uh, but it recently, the mission recently got an extension by four years from NASA, and uh, everyone broadly expects that sometime in the next two years or so, uh, that sister Earth will be found around another star. I just want to say for those who just tuned in, you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and I'm talking with Travis Metcalf, an astronomer who searches for planets around other stars. You also uh, mentioned there's a project called the Pale Pale Blue Dot Project. Uh, What is that exactly? 
Well, uh, so I'm involved in, a, in an international collaboration that um, studies and characterizes the host stars of the planetary systems that the Kepler Space Telescope identifies. And uh, this is an international project that, that NASA basically cannot fund because it's international. So we launched our own nonprofit project where uh, interested citizens can adopt a star that Kepler is searching for planets and support our scientific research. Okay, so if they wanted to do that, what's the URL for that? That's at uh, whitedwarf.org slash dot. Very well. So you can adopt a star and then try to hope you find a planet around it. Exactly. Uh, you can also you don't adopt... get to own the planet, though. I guess, no, you, you don't. No, no mineral <laughs> rights, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the past and present of the exoplanet search. Other than Kepler, what other kind of searches are going on right now? Uh, right now, it's a lot of ground-based stuff. Um, so surveys from the ground doing something similar that uh, Kepler's doing. Um, but Kepler's really dominating the planet hunting game yeah, at the moment. Over um, 2,000 candidates. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, in the near future, uh, I mean, Kepler is really just going to identify these planets that could potentially have life. And the question is, how will we really determine whether they are actually habit habitable, whether they're actually uh, hospitable to life? Right. So that's the next, that's kind of the near future. Yeah. And how do you do that? How do you know if a planet's hospitable? <laughs> well, there's a couple of different approaches you could take. Uh, one approach would be to take those 2,000 uh, exoplanet candidates and start listening for radio signals. The search for extraterrestrial SETI. intelligence, yes, right. SETI, is, has already started monitoring these Kepler exoplanet sure. candidates. Uh, for evidence of intelligent signals in the form of radio or television, whatever. Well, television, intelligent signal may be contradictory, but... <laughs> so so SETI's doing searches to uh, see if there's life out there. Again, searching for the exoplanets isn't the same as searching for life. You're just looking for where the little green men might live. Right. If they're like us, uh, where could they find a, a hospitable home? Are there other ways, uh, other than finding the planets... Um, you had mentioned trying to characterize them a little more. I mean, Kepler's really uh, shifting the emphasis from discovery to statistics. It's trying to determine, it's doing a census of the galactic neighborhood and trying to determine how common are planets like the Earth around other stars. And that's been one of the great surprises of the past few years is that they're much more common than we ever believed before. Uh, and so it may be a lot easier to make Earths than we previously thought. So... Finding a planet that's the size of the Earth, I mean, a next step would be to look for um, signatures, either an atmosphere or something like that, or I guess you said water, signatures that either could mean it's hospitable to life or actually there might be signatures that could be signatures of life. Yeah, in the near term, so uh, the next uh, big space telescope that NASA will launch is called the James Webb Space Telescope. It's a, an enormous uh, 20 uh, foot diameter mirror. It's uh, billed as the successor of the Hubble Space Telescope. And this will really have the, the ability, once we identify these sister Earths, to look for uh, spectral signatures of, for example, um, the, the in the reflected light, you might see a, a signature of green plants, for example. Very good. So uh, there's, there's this famous equation called the Drake Equation, which is used to kind of estimate how many habitable planets or how much the prob possibility of life is out there. What does the work that you're doing uh, do as far as affecting our knowledge of that number? 
so the Drake equation really says uh, that the possibility of having um, life like we know it uh, on a planet like we know it around a star like we like our sun is really really small because it's the product of all these individual terms that are themselves very improbable uh, and the thing that Kepler has done as a game changer has been to show that one of those factors at least the frequency of planets like the earth is much higher than we'd previously assumed we we were too pessimistic in our evaluation of of how unlikely that that might might be so at least maybe the number of how many habitable planets there are has increased we won't know about say the lifetime of the civilization uh, without a statistic of one that we hope to never find is limited um there's also kind of the rare earth hypothesis which says that um actually it's just generally very improbable but is that the same as the drake equation but with smaller factors yeah basically that's so you're doing a cafe sci tonight in denver Uh, for our listeners who've never been to a cafe sci uh what would they what should they expect so Denver hosts its Cafe Sci at the Wincoop Brewery in Lodo. Uh, and basically, it starts at 6.30. Uh, there will be like an informal, basic, uh, public-level presentation for about 20 or 25 minutes. There will be a short break so you can get a beer and some food maybe. And then uh, 45 minutes of questions and answers and, and just general discussion. That's the spirit of the Cafe Scientific. And your presentation, it's no, not PowerPoint slides. That's right. It's just uh, just chatting, just it, chatting up. it up. Yeah, giving a, a real basic introduction to the, to the science that we're doing. One last question. Just what was your motivation to go into astronomy in the first place? Uh, I've loved astronomy since I was a little kid. Uh, I had a, a grade school teacher who would just mention um, uh, astronomical events, eclipses, and what planets were in the night sky, and it really lit up my imagination and uh, sent me on a path that I've been on ever since. Did you ever think that you could get paid doing that? (laughs) I obviously dreamed of it, and uh, some dreams do come true. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you were able to come in today and let us know a little bit about exoplanets and what to expect for uh, your presentation or your discussion tonight. I appreciate you coming into the studio, Travis. Thanks for having me. That was Joel Parker talking with astronomer Travis Metcalf about the search for planets around other stars. If you want to hear more about this topic or have questions that you want to ask Travis directly, you will have the chance tonight at Denver's Cafe Scientifique, where you can join in on the discussion titled Finding Sister Earth, Quivering Stars, and the Quest for Habitable Planets. The cafe side tonight starts at 6.30 at the Wincoop Brewing, Brewing Company on the corner of 18th and Wincoop in Lodo, Denver. It is free and open to the public. More information is available at cafesicolorado.org. And, again, you can get more information about Travis's blue, Pale Blue Dot project at whitedorf.org slash dot. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Jim Pullen. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender and was engineered by Jim Pullen, who also wrote some of this week's headlines, as did Beth Bartell. Thanks, Jim, and thank you, Beth. You're welcome, Joel. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music this morning from Calamus. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartell. And I'm Joel Parker.